This is Crosscut Reports. I'm Maliha Sayed. This week, and throughout the month of December, we're revisiting some episodes from earlier in the year and updating them with what's happened since. Today, we're looking back at the growing movement among Starbucks employees to unionize their stores and negotiate with the company for a contract. Last week, Starbucks told Workers United that it would like to start talks in January and bargain and ratify contracts in 2024. It's the latest development in a story that's been playing out for two years. Earlier this year, Crosscut's Liz Giordano reported on these labor organizing efforts in Washington, including the alleged retaliation workers said they faced from the multinational coffee chain. We're going to replay that episode now to dive deeper into how we got here. Afterward, You'll hear a more recent conversation we had with Liz about what's happened since she published that story, including several union wins in eastern Washington, as well as what lies ahead for Starbucks employees. But first, here's that episode from March. They used to treat their workers with respect, and throughout the pandemic, we have seen them disrespect workers over and over. So Liz, I guess about a year year and a half ago now, we were seeing a lot of headlines um, about unionization efforts at major companies, including, for example, Amazon and Starbucks. Organizing efforts have been ongoing at coffee giant Starbucks. High-profile union drives and strikes are underway at a handful of companies, from Amazon to Starbucks and REI. And that was a really big deal. It felt like a really big deal at the time. We were seeing a lot of headlines, a lot of news flashes about it. There were a lot of big conversations about what that was going to mean for the country. I was wondering if you could kind of bring us back to that time in order to kind of set up the context for your current reporting. What was going on in like 2021, 2022, in terms of unionization efforts. I think during the pandemic, a lot of retail and service workers were were feeling they didn't really have a seat at the table as companies were making decisions about safety and health conditions at the workplace. It's Amazon versus the people and the people have spoken. And a lot of these companies were continuing to do all right, sometimes even record revenue. And I think workers wanted a seat at the table to kind of like discuss issues and kind of bring safety concerns up to management and be heard and see things change. And I think also kind of what's kind of changed, too, Um, is there's been a historically tight labor market. So that's given retail workers a lot of leverage as they unionize and as they push for this kind of like collective bargaining rights and push for a contract. And yeah, I mean, it's interesting because over some recent decades, as far as I understand, union membership in this country has kind of declined, but it seems like the interest in unions overall in the country has risen in recent years. Is that correct? Um, kind of. It's the it's the percentage of workers belonging to unions has decreased. Um, but then there's been an uptick in workers filing for union elections. And right now, also, Americans approving of labor unions is it's the highest it's been since 1965. So it's kind of it's it's interesting to watch kind of as the percentage of workers belonging to unions decreases, there's an interest rising. And the latest Gallup poll shows 71 percent of Americans now approve of labor unions. When did the first Starbucks store unionize, and and what has that looked like over the past couple of years? So the the first store to unionize was a store in Buffalo, New York. Today we saw a remarkable scene in Buffalo, New York. And they unionized in December 2021. And they saw their store become the first company-owned Starbucks to unionize in its 50-year history. I heard from a lot of workers in Seattle that, that inspired them to kind of think about unionization. 
And so it kind of cascaded from there. And since then, about 20 stores in Washington have unionized many of them in Seattle. But I think what's interesting, too, again, it's not just happening in Seattle. There's a store in Everett that unionized, a store in Marysville. And across the country, too. I mean, how many stores? Now we're talking hundreds, right? Almost 300 have unionized so far um, across the country. But put it in context, there's about 10,000 company-owned stores. Mm. So still, even though when stores are having these votes, the majority of workers are voting to unionize. I think it's like an 80 percent rate of stores that when they have a vote, they unionize. Mm. But still, it's a kind of a, it's a drop in the bucket in how many stores are out there exist. Right. OK. So, yeah. So a very small percentage of Starbucks stores are unionized. However, you know, of the stores that have an election, um, you know, huge percentage of those. But I guess the big question, the question that you went, went out kind of seeking to answer was, what now? <laughs> These stores, they vote to unionize. They're therefore part of a union. Um, What is the union called, actually? They joined Workers United. Okay, Workers United. And then kind of what next? I mean, does anyone have a contract? No, no contract. So right now they're holding sessions for each store that unionized. They're holding a bargaining session with the, with the company. Um, but this kind of the sticking point has been whether members of the bargaining committee can participate over Zoom. You know, some of the bargaining committee members are in New York or other places that are, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles away from Seattle or wherever the negotiations are taking place at that moment. Starbucks wants to, quote unquote, bargain in person um, where the union wants to allow union members from across the the country to participate or observe. The idea is the Workers United want to kind of establish a baseline contract. So, you know, most stores are treated very similarly. You know, one one committee member talked about how, you know, when you go into a Starbucks, you you know, any Starbucks is pretty much the same. You expect the same kind of drinks. So, like, we have very similar issues that we want to, you know, tackle in a contract. Um, and so a baseline would be very helpful so, like, no store is left behind. And then also to kind of, like, transparency. It's like, well, this is what th- this store is talking about for their contract, so maybe we all want this in our contract. But then again, you know, Starbucks has no incentive to kind of lay out a national baseline because then they're just telling other stores who haven't unionized, this is what you get if you unionize. And so it's just, you know, the sticking point in the tension as they bargain. You know, it's, just, it's a power struggle. I was able to sit in on a one, one session in Seattle, and it was for an East, a store in Eastlake that unionized. And it, it lasted less than 10 minutes. Again, that was that sticking point was, you know, are, can the union have a laptop open with Zoom going so people can participate? I see, I see. So it's like the hope from the perspective of the, of the union uh, members is... Let's open this up at least for observation for other stores around the country. And mm-hmm. Starbucks representatives are saying, no, we want to just negotiate in person with you guys because we have no incentive to open this up to others because then they would just get ideas. That's what I'm inferring. I haven't, you know, the company issued me a statement. Um, but I think they're all, they also issued a letter kind of in response to like in-person versus Zoom bargaining. And they, are, they, they talk about being worried they'll be recorded or that people were participating that's not involved in the union. And so I think they're a little worried about that also. It sounds like they haven't gotten very far at all, really, in terms of actual negotiations. The session I was at, the the union was ready to kind of pass these non-economic proposals across the table, kind of a starting point. Um, but they didn't even get that far. Other members have told me that the first couple sessions, when there's only a couple stores that have unionized, kind of got further along. Um, but they said this is kind of the way it's been for a while now. It's really short sessions. How would you sort of characterize, I guess, overall, 
the reasons why a lot of workers voted to unionize in the first place. A lot of workers talked about like pay equity, you know, uh, that sometimes new employees are making, you know, just pennies less than people who've been there several years. Um, they talk about workplace safety. You know, air conditioning was a big issue, um, especially during this, you know, last summer um, in Seattle. Guaranteed hours, you know, some workers talk about their their hours fluctuating so much they're not sure if they can pay rent. Um, and again, going back to the idea of having a seat at the table when this, the company was making some of these decisions about the pandemic, um, one worker pointed to hazard pay. The company offered that voluntarily for a few months, but then but then stopped. And this worker felt that it was too soon. The pandemic was still here. It was still around and that they still wanted that hazard pay. Yeah, pretty, pretty typical reasons why a lot of places or why a lot of workers want to unionize. So there are, you know, these conflicts arising at the bargaining table. Are there other barriers that union members are alleging Starbucks is throwing up? Yeah, the union is alleging that, you know, some of these store closures that we saw last year in Seattle um, was kind of a way to dissuade workers from joining unions. This location will now become the fourth unionized store in Seattle to be shut down. And while Starbucks says it's about safety, some aren't buying it. They closed a handful of them, some unionized stores, some not. The unions filed some unfair labor practice complaints about uh, holding captive audience meetings, these compulsory meetings that, you know, are meant to talk about how bad unions are and what they, you know, if you join a union, your benefits would be threatened. And then also kind of they rolled out a couple benefits for non-unionized stores like credit card tipping um, and then, you know, relaxed dress codes. And I think the unions pointing to that as some kind of retaliation to dissuade workers from wanting to join unions. And um, the credit card tipping seems like a big deal. One worker told me it was adding like $200 to her paycheck a week. Um, and this is something that workers have been asking for for a long time. I was given a uh, a weekly update that the, the company puts out about kind of rolling out credit card tipping. And it specifically says that they can't roll it out to unionize stores because of, you know, they're going through collective bargaining. Um, they specifically spell it out in these weekly updates that it's only going to happen at non-unionized stores. So there are a number of things that you're seeing based on your reporting, um, even just anecdotally, you're hearing from workers. But also you found that some of these practices are leading to uh, kind of a lot of complaints filed with the National Labor Relations Board. You report that as of mid-February, there were 497 open or settled unfair labor charges filed against Starbucks or Littler Mendelssohn PC, the law firm representing the company. Wow. Yeah, I was just wondering if you could tell me a little bit about those complaints. Yeah, definitely. A lot of them are citing refusal to bargain or holding captive audience meetings or um, over the store closures and also those rollout of benefits to non-unionized stores. Um, but what I think what's interesting is as they're being as decisions are coming down too, they're like heavily finding in favor of the union. The National Labor Relations Board has filed a rare lawsuit in federal court to immediately reinstate seven Memphis Starbucks workers who say they were illegally fired in retaliation for their union efforts. The Starbucks was required to rehire workers found to be unfairly terminated. And uh, they were also found to have held captive audience meetings. But the NLRB is kind of limited on the punishments it can dole out. It can't issue fines. Um, again, it can require companies to hire back workers. But in the case of, like, captive audience meetings, the punishment was to post a sign that said they violated labor laws. Um, and then it reiterated kind of the 
employees' rights to unionize and what they could talk about and what they could do at the workplace. Um, and so that was that was the punishment. Um, and then I think twofold also is, you know, that NLRB is dealing with an uptick in election petitions and an uptick in unfair labor practices, charges being filed, um, all while, you know, its budgets kind of remained the same. They got a small boost, um, I think, last year. Um, but then they're struggling with staff shortages like so many other places are. And so they're kind of dealing with a higher workload with less people. And so I think Starbucks is in a position where they can just delay, delay, delay. Um, and I think, you know, workers are going to have to find another way to kind of exert public pressure if they want to get more movement on their contract. So what arguments in general do you find that Starbucks is making in its defense here? Like what, what does it say in the face of all of all of these arguments from union members and, and the NLRB? Yeah, I think we've seen um, the CEO, Howard Schultz, talk about this a little bit. You know, the idea of like it, that he thinks of Starbucks as a progressive company. We have to demonstrate to our people they can trust us. And we have to show up. And they, you know, they kind of, they have led the way on coffee shop wages um, and offering benefits and that, you know, since they are competitive and outstanding benefits, like the workers don't need to unionize. Did you ever see doing that and embracing the union as part of it? No. You know, the store has given them these benefits, so there's no need to organize. And uh, no Starbucks representatives agreed to speak with you for this story, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was issued a statement. But they also refused uh, Senator uh, Bernie Sanders, too, to kind of... Oh, really? Well, they, they offered to send someone other than Howard Schultz in front of his uh, Senate committee. Senator Bernie Sanders wants Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz to testify before lawmakers. The CEO of Starbucks, Howard Schultz, is refusing an invitation to testify before the Senate Labor Committee. Lawmakers want Schultz to address allegations that Starbucks has been actively engaged in union busting. He's been pretty harsh critic of their some of their tactics. That Starbucks management to say the least, has been less than enthusiastic about this union organizing. It seems like what Starbucks is alleged to have done or is doing um, is not new, you know. So in some ways it's like, this is a new story, this is an old story. Yeah, definitely. I talked to the head of the Boeing Machinist Union, you know, one of the oldest unions, you know, we see around in the Puget Sound area. Um, and he talked about um, how, you know, one of the hardest things is to do get that first contract. But then, you know, he's constantly still educating workers what the union does, how it works, how it benefits them. They've been negotiating contracts for years, um, but still issues pop up and both sides are filing unfair labor practices. Um, so it's, you know, it's always a struggle. Mm-hmm. That first contract is probably the hardest. And one of the things that it seems like might be the case in a lot of these stories, but perhaps particularly in this industry, is is the issue of turnover. If the first contract is just taking so, so, so long, the people who voted to join that union may or may not be on staff anymore, you know? I mean, is that something that you ran into in your conversations with workers? Like, Maybe some of the people who voted to join the union may or may not be working for Starbucks anymore. Oh, definitely. Um, I think some stores, especially stores up by the university, you know, they have a lot of students, a lot of turnover. Um, the one Eastlake store I talked to, uh, they were the, actually the 100th store to unionize. Um, you know, only two workers remain. And granted, it's a small store, um, not a lot of workers, but only two workers remain that took that union vote. Um, and so one worker talked about how she's, you know, many new workers don't even know they belong to a union because, you know, you're, they're not paying union dues until there's a contract. 
And so they don't, they're not really seeing a benefit of the union she talked about, um, only seeing kind of the bad parts because they're not getting the credit card tipping. Um, they're not getting the relaxation of the dress code. Mm-hmm. And yet the unionization efforts, the new unionization efforts in some cases are continuing. So recently you you went up to Shoreline. Can you tell me about that? I brought you guys t-shirts. Yes, a Shoreline Starbucks, uh, the first Shoreline Starbucks to unionize, um, took a vote in late January. They closed the store for two voting periods one day. Um, I I was there at the very end when they were, when the National Labor Relations Board was counting the votes and a couple of baristas had uh, gathered outside to kind of witness it. We're really I know, I guess I'm smiling. I'm really excited. <laughs> I, I have the mask on, but it's there. The they can be as mean as they want. They can't change the vote. <laughs> yes. And it was, it was pretty decisive. You know, I think one person who voted decided, yes. voted against joining the union. And so they're pretty, they're pretty happy and excited and they could celebrate as I saw that kind of that stack grow larger and larger. And did did you talk to people about why why they thought they wanted to join this union? Uh, you know, at this time, this would have been you know January twenty twenty three after after they'd seen you know a lot of the you know alleged stalling tactics and all the rest. Same reasons, pay equity was a big one, um, and then just they wanted to make Starbucks a better place, and they saw that it was just ahead that it was just, it was going to happen, and you know they wanted to be part of that movement. I just feel like we have looked out for decades now for all the people at the top and all the shareholders at the big companies like Starbucks. Yes. And nobody wants to say the reason you make record profits is because you rip off your employees. We're the face of the company. Nobody's responsible for our future now. We're just responsible for theirs. Exactly. Not anymore. (laughs) Not anymore. A lot of workers talked about the idea of, you know, they wanted to stick around, you know, to see Starbucks become a better place because, you know, Starbucks sets the standards for a lot of places. You know, it's a big company. You know, if they raise their pay. Other places have to raise their pay. Otherwise, people just go to Starbucks because there's locations everywhere. And so that, that was really interesting, kind of that seeing it in a larger picture. Yeah. I mean, I was curious about that. I mean, because it's part of the reason that the larger public is watching Starbucks, Amazon, you know, these big companies and these stories about unionization efforts at these companies is because they're huge companies. They have such a big impact on the larger labor market. And they have such a big impact on other companies and what they do. What do you feel like this says, <laughs> if anything, about unionization efforts going forward what does this say about what's next, I guess? Well, I think, yeah, watching Starbucks has kind of kind of set the stage for what is next. You know, you know, Amazon warehouses are starting to unionize, but not in the numbers that Starbucks stores have. And so I think it is kind of going to set a precedent. You know, are these workers going to be successful? Are they going to get a contract that improves their working conditions, that improves pay equity? Um, so, yeah, I think I think a lot of people are watching Starbucks to kind of see what how it could play out in other places. Yeah, it's still a watching and waiting, I guess. In some ways, it seems like you kind of set out in this this reporting journey to kind of see, okay, so the vote happens, and can what next? And then how is this playing out? And then sure enough, uh, it, it's been a lot of waiting, <laughs> and then sure enough, it's a lot more waiting, and then sure enough, it's a lot more waiting. I mean, that's what it sounds like. Is is that how it feels to you? Oh, oh, definitely. I think I think we'll be watching this story for a while. A 
lot has happened since that first interview with Liz, so we caught up with her to ask what's new when it comes to these labor organizing efforts, and what's on the horizon for Starbucks employees. You'll hear that conversation now. In the months since, you had an update, and it was, I think, on the precipice of or right after a new CEO came in to Starbucks. Starbucks, the new CEO officially taking the helm of the coffee giant nearly two weeks earlier than expected. What was happening around that time? Um, Just much more of the same. Starbucks baristas held a big rally outside the headquarters in Seattle, something we covered. There was hundreds of people there. Lots of different labor organizations came out to support them. But really, it was just, I think, a chance for the union to vocalize their needs and their wants with the new CEO. It's more recently that things in Washington kind of started to shift a little bit. Three stores in eastern Washington unionized, one in Spokane, one in Walla Walla, and one in Prosser. Yeah, and that was a story in, I think it was September you wrote, there's this growing traction happening in eastern Washington. Do you know why it's building there, why the momentum has started to kind of grow there? Um, I think it was just like one store, the first store uh, in Walla Walla unionized, and then other stores in eastern Washington saw it happening closer to home and in stores that were, they were more relatable to. And so I think that's kind of when they decided that this could happen here too. It's not just a western Washington, a Seattle movement, but it could be a statewide action. Right. And I think you wrote about Something that had happened in the Prosser Cafe specifically, there was a challenge to Prosser's effort to unionize. Yeah, after Prosser took a vote, Starbucks challenged that election. They they alleged electioneering. Um, a Prosser barista described it as they were hanging out on a patio outside the store while voting occurred. And to avoid kind of a lengthy legal fight, the baristas at Prosser decided to just help hold a revote. And they had... The first vote was like three to one. So they're very, very confident that they would, again, vote in the union, which is which is what they did um, in a pretty quick vote. Um, and so it doesn't seem like Starbucks is going to challenge that. Yeah. And it was funny. Today we're recording. It's November 16th and it's Red Cup Day. 14 stores from nine different Washington cities say they're walking out on Red Cup Day where thousands of free, reusable cups are handed out, making it one of the busiest days for staff. And now everyone's downtown protesting. And I guess this is maybe more speculative, but do you see this movement continuing to grow and build or kind of evolve over time? It seems like it really took off during the pandemic when people were going into work and dealing with, you know, being exposed to people during the pandemic. And so do you think that momentum's going to continue? Are we going to keep seeing people trying to unionize around the state? I, th- I think so, because we, we saw a lot of movement with strikes, strikes with the auto workers and the, the actors and Writers Guild. They were able to achieve a lot of their goals through strikes and through unionizing. I think there's still a long slog for uh, Starbucks workers because, you know, it's still a very small percentage of stores have unionized, you know, like 363 voted in a union. And I think Starbucks workers are going to need to kind of win the support of their their customers to kind of push Starbucks into, you know, to the bargaining table. There is a uh, hearing in front of the National Labor Relations Board about allegations of Starbucks not bargaining in good faith that's being heard right now. But, you know, a decision's still far out. The hearing's supposed to last until March of next year. And then it could take, you know, maybe a year even for a decision because other decisions have taken that long. 
It's specifically going to tackle hybrid bargaining. Do they have to only bargain in person? Can they bargain over Zoom? And I think that's going to kind of then lead to like the idea of is there going to be a national contract or is there going to be store by store? So I think, you know, for Starbucks workers, there's still a long road ahead. But for other retail workers, I think that we are going to see a lot of more organizing and unionization because workers are seeing a benefit, are seeing, you know, something come out of that. That conversation with Liz happened last month, and she was right. The question of how and when bargaining is going to happen is a big one that's still playing out. According to Workers United, there has been no bargaining since May of this year. But just last Friday, Starbucks sent a letter to the union saying it wanted to restart bargaining in January and hopefully ratify contracts in 2024. Liz's union sources say, however, that they're not sure this announcement from Starbucks changes much. And the company still hasn't budged on the union's ask for hybrid bargaining. One more update. As of December 6th, 367 Starbucks stores have unionized. Liz will be sure to follow up on all of this in the new year. Thanks for listening to Crosscut Reports. This episode was reported by Liz Giordano. It was produced by Sarah Bernard and me, Maliha Sayed. The story editor was Ryan Famuliner. Our executive producer is Sarah Menzies. You can subscribe to Crosscut Reports wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Also, if you would like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the video docuseries we stream every week, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. That's also where you'll find a text version of the story we discussed today. Crosscut Reports is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Maliha Sayed. We'll be back soon with another episode.